In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. This week we've been telling the story of the last week of Jesus' life. We started with his entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people waving palm branches and yelling hosannas. He went to Bethany, a little bedroom community snuggled up on the outskirts of Jerusalem where he had dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. Mary soaked in all that Jesus had to say. And Martha complained that she was always the one getting stuck with all the work and the authorities plotted to kill Jesus because he was getting more likes on his social media page than they were. The next day, Jesus went to a festival and got all philosophical about light and darkness and confused everyone with his cryptic quips about only being around a little longer. Then it was time for one last supper, a betrayal and a cleansing of feet and spirit. It's been a pretty full week, and now we enter into the dramatic finale of this five-part act. It's not much of a cliffhanger. We all know what is about to go down. But I wonder if we might have heard something new, some sense of urgency, maybe tinged with a hint of sadness in the telling of this story today. Maybe it is because Mark's gospel seems so direct in the telling of who Jesus is, or maybe it is because our own world so desperately needs a Messiah right now. Either way, there is a sense that this life was cut short way too quickly. Other gospels communicate the message that Jesus had done all he needed to do, but there is a sense in Mark that there is some slight disconnect, as if a misunderstanding had taken place. And if we could all just stop a moment and take a deep breath, we might be able to sort all this out. Instead, we go from a garden in Gethsemane to a cross on Golgotha, like we are doing zero to 60 in a sports car. No one expresses remorse. Not the women at the cross who watch from afar. Not the crowds who shout, crucify him! not the centurion whose child had been brought back to life by Jesus. And even if it was not the same centurion, he still would have known about it. Not Joseph of Arimathea, though he does demonstrate his good character and why he would have been so respected by caring for the body of the broken Jesus. And certainly not by the authorities. Everyone plays some role as a witness to this execution But in this moment of the passion of Christ, the only emotions expressed are sarcasm by the bystanders and a morbid excitement from a centurion. Oh, and Jesus' own insecurity, sorrow, and doubt as to God's love and concern for him. Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabakathini? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? At times, I think we visualize Jesus' death as his hanging on a cross amidst a forest of other criminals and crosses. He alone, the innocent victim, suffering for the crime of trying to make the world a better place. 
In other Gospels, we are told two others hung with him, and they were bona fide crooks. Barabbas, a murderer, gets released. A crowd full of bloodthirsty, vengeance is mine kind of thinking people are stirred up in order to sacrifice this lamb whose fleece is as white as snow. And the authorities, as smug as cats who just swallowed canaries. It's a perfect setup for a scapegoat, a fall guy, a dupe, a patsy. Because that is exactly what everyone needed. A sacrificial lamb to take responsibility for all the problems and hardships, their own failings. A depressive government and a fundamental religious culture that went along to get along. The desire to live in a society where the rules are clear and the lines easily identified is so compelling that a rabble-rouser like Jesus, who talked about the value of love over law, is threatening and uncomfortable. It doesn't matter that Jesus is one of us, or that his words and actions are never violent and always compassionate. His concern for the poor, the outcast, the overlooked, meant living in the blurry area where the lines are difficult to establish and the rules don't easily apply. Anything and anyone that poses that kind of threat needs to be eliminated as they are a threat to the status quo, the equilibrium and balance, no matter how tenuous it might be, that society has agreed upon. Simply put, Jesus' death is scapegoating, an ancient practice that even scripture commends. It is a time when an escaping goat is beaten with reeds and driven into the wilderness away from civilization. The goat has the unhappy charge of carrying the burden of sin and guilt and shame that the community has acquired, and the violence shown to it acquits those who are in need of some sort of atonement. It is a ritual designed to make us feel better about ourselves and bring us back into right relationship with one another. In understanding Jesus as scapegoat, one might think that we Christians would be less willing to do our own scapegoating, but we're not. We continue to scapegoat and shift personal responsibility onto others as we cling to some semblance of what we think society must be in order for us to thrive without accepting any personal responsibility for the problems and the sufferings that threaten our established way of life. Our challenge lies less in our, our understanding of Jesus as scapegoat and more in all the scapegoats we have held up as responsible for Jesus' death. For 2,000 years, we've blamed the Jews, which has led not only to anti-Semitism, but racism and genocide due to deeply rooted nationalism that always looks upon the other with suspicion. In more recent times, we blame Christian fundamentalists or Christian liberals, depending on which side you're on, as smearing the righteousness of Christ crucified. Then there is always the atheist, Muslims, Buddhist, Wiccans, or whatever other cult group we define as over and against our faith. The fact of the matter is that we are really no different from the frenzied crowd and the authority who stirred them up 2,000 years ago.
We live our comfortable lifestyles and spend most of our time protecting what we have against any threat, be that immigration, racial justice and equality, equal pay for women, poverty relief, employment and education opportunities for minorities, and the list could go on and on. We have bought into the social values of competition, power, money, and prestige. There's a pretty clear set of rules around what it means to get ahead. And when those rules are threatened, then we feel threatened and we shout, crucify him, crucify him. And when those scapegoats who threaten our comfortable lives say, I can't breathe, or knock on a governor's door only to be arrested, I have to wonder, who would I have been that day at Golgotha? The particularities of the events of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus's life, may have happened 2,000 years ago, but they seem to be continually played out over history and even today. Burning heretics, witch hunts, lynchings, and in more recent times, police brutality suggest that not only is scapegoating so deeply embedded in our culture and heritage, but the violence that accompanies that has become normalized. Maybe it is because even though we desire to believe in a loving God, instead of taking his image upon ourselves, we thrust our image upon God, the image of punishment and retribution. And yet, God on the cross does not punish, nor does he reject the suffering that is thrust upon him. He redeems that suffering and us, opening a path to salvation, regardless of our level of remorse or the volume when we shout, crucify him.